looking at Romans chapter 1 this morning. If you were writing a letter to someone you'd never met, you'd probably write it differently than to an old friend. You might take the time to introduce yourself, mention your credentials, your reason for writing, and if by chance you were going to ask for something, maybe financial support or a recommendation or something like that, you'd probably write it even a little more differently. That would have a bearing on your letter. Now, I mentioned last week that we have to keep in mind that Romans was originally a letter sent to a particular church or churches, house churches, in a particular place at a particular time with particular issues. We can see the truth of that in the, Paul's introductory remarks. When this letter was composed, there was a standard letter writing format like there is today. I mean, we write, Dear So-and-so, and if it's a business letter, we put our name, our title, and address up at the top. In Paul's day, the standard template was a little different. The writer first introduced himself. The first thing was not dear so-and-so, it was like Shane. And then the recipient's name, John, and only then offered greetings. So it would go like this, Shane to John, greetings. That was it. Shane to John, greetings. Four words, possibly six, if in Greek he used the definite articles, which are often omitted in salutations, and possibly a few more if he used descriptors. Pastor Shane to Brother John, greetings. But instead of four or six or maybe even ten words in this salutation, Paul used 99, 99 densely packed words, which the NIV takes 142 words in English to translate. With this extraordinarily long, dense salutation, Paul introduces the Romans to himself. Now, why? Why so long an introduction? Now, it's true that he usually wrote longer introductions than were common in letters of the period. But this one is long, even for Paul. It's the longest in his corpus, a third longer than 1 Corinthians, twice as long as 2 Corinthians, three times as long as Ephesians. Let's take a moment and read it. Let's read the first seven verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him... And for his namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Why the long salutation? Well, I think for one thing, Paul was writing to a church that didn't know him. Uh, at least most of its members didn't know him. He had met some of these folks before, but not most. It's also true of the Colossian church. They didn't know him either. And Colossians has a short salutation. But in Romans, Paul was writing to a church he planned to visit and from which he hoped to raise support. And further, he was writing to a church that had almost certainly heard rumors about him, some of which were negative. The Roman church members were aware that some Christians, even some Christian leaders, 
considered Paul theologically and perhaps morally suspect. We're going to find evidence of that when we get to chapter 3. I think there's another reason for this long greeting. In the light of what the Roman Christians might have heard, and in the face of the struggles that the church was going through at the time, Paul wanted to lay the groundwork for his message right here in the salutation. And so in these first few densely packed verses, we get a kind of abstract, uh, a thumbnail sketch of the entire letter. It's a kind of gospel in a nutshell in this introduction. First, Paul introduces himself, as in all the letters of that period. Then he lays out his credentials, and there are three. He is Christ's slave, a called apostle, as opposed to a self-designated one, and he was marked out by God for the Office of Gospel Communications Director to the Gentiles. Now, the first of those credentials is easy for us to misunderstand, the reference to Christ's slave. It sounds very humble for Paul to say that he's nothing but a lowly slave. But in that culture, it's a little different. The emperor's slave, for example, wielded greater power than many kings. When he spoke, people listened. But Paul boasted a higher position still, Messiah's slave, for Messiah was king of the world. So there's both humility and authority in his claim. Humility because his life was not his own. Authority because his words were not his own. He represented the king of the world. Next, Paul identifies himself as a called apostle. The word called looks like a verb in many of our English translations, but it's not. It's an adjective. Paul is a called apostle, implying that he didn't take on this high office by himself. King Jesus chose him. If the Romans had heard rumors casting doubt on Paul's authority, he intended to lay those doubts to rest right here. He was sent by Christ the King and is the bearer of his authority. He's a called apostle. And finally, he's been set apart, better marked out for the gospel. He's the gospel communications director for the Gentiles. That is, he is authorized to announce the official message of God's kingdom and explain its ramifications. And that, of course, is what the letter of Romans is all about. And we have it encapsulated here in the first verse. In verses 2 through 4, Paul describes in a nutshell what he means by the gospel. It's not an exhaustive definition by any means. It's an introduction. Paul insists that the gospel entrusted to him was promised, this is verse 2, long ago through the prophets. He probably had a great many Old Testament verses in mind, but Isaiah 52, 7 was almost certainly one of them. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's the word gospel. Who bring gospel, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings. That's the verb uh, to speak the gospel, to gospelize who gospelize, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. That the gospel was promised long ago is important because it reminds us that the gospel was not some last-ditch effort on God's part when his original plan failed. This was the plan way back when the prophets were calling God's people back to him. This was always plan A. 
God never had a plan B. He didn't need one. The gospel had been entrusted to Paul, but it is God's gospel. That's the end of verse 1. In Greek, the phrase, the gospel of God, could mean one of three things. It could mean the gospel that belongs to God. It's his news. He's the one who sent the announcement. But secondly, it could mean the gospel that is about God, in which case God himself is the news. He's the good news. The third possibility is that Paul had both those things in mind. The gospel is the news announcement that God sent about what he's like and what he's done. And I think that's the best way to take it. Now remember, we talked about this last week, how Octavius battled Mark Antony and Cleopatra in far-off Greece for the supremacy of Rome. And remember how after the battle was over, he sent messengers to Rome to spread the gospel. That was the word, the good news that he had won, that the war was over, and that peace was at hand. In that situation, Octavius, whom we know better as Augustus, Augustus Caesar, both sent the announcement, so it was his gospel, he sent it, it was sent from Augustus, and the announcement was about him, about what he'd done. It was his gospel, it was about Augustus. We have that same double meaning here, I think. Paul describes it as the gospel of God, verse 1, which concerns his son, verse 3, who is declared to be the son of God through the spirit, verse 4, through the resurrection of the dead. In the space of three short verses, which is one long sentence in Greek, Paul introduces the gospel and he manages to mention the entire trinity and the resurrection. Now he'll elaborate on the gospel as we go forward. But by the fourth verse, he's already let us know where he's going with this. God is active on earth. He is keeping his ancient promises. He has won the decisive battle and has now sent the world the gospel of peace. In verses 2 through 4, we have the gospel. In verse 5, we have the messenger. Paul outlines his work. God has given him resources, grace, and authority, apostleship, to call people from among the Gentiles. Now, the verb to call doesn't appear at this point in the original language. Instead, Paul says, we have received grace, the resources we need, and apostleship, the authority we need, unto, it's a Greek word that often indicates purpose, faith obedience among the Gentiles. Faith obedience, the obedience of faith, that's the stated goal. Paul does not say that the goal is a larger church. He does not say that the goal is a bigger ministry. He does not even say that the goal is getting souls into heaven. He has been given resources and authority for the purpose of producing faith obedience among the Gentiles. If we superimpose our theological preconceptions onto Paul's words right here at the very beginning of this letter, we're liable to miss what he actually says and superimpose our idea over the gospel's purpose. 
And when we do that, you know what inevitably happens? Obedience quietly slips out of the picture. Obedience becomes something that's great if you have it, but not necessary. We, without intending to do so, can grant faith and obedience a divorce. But what God has joined together, let not man separate. And God has joined faith and obedience together. They're married. Faith and religion aren't married. Neither are faith and legalism, nor are faith and reason, though they're good friends. But God has joined faith and obedience. It's important we grasp that right at the outset of this study. Paul stresses the importance of obedience in the first paragraph. And it remains important throughout this entire letter. We will misread parts of this letter if we forget about the obedience of faith. Now, there are other kinds of obedience. There's fear obedience. And that's where you do what you do because you're afraid of the consequences if you don't. God is not after that kind of obedience. <clears throat> there is rule-keeping obedience. The Pharisees majored in this one. There is follow-the-crowd obedience. Judas had that for a little while. God doesn't want that either. God wants our obedience. He really does. It is crucial to his plan. But he wants it because we trust that what he says is best, not because we fear the worst. Too many Christians and you may know some of them, would stop being Christians if they suddenly stopped being afraid. That is a tragedy. And it is so far from what God intends. In verse 7, we come finally to the end of the salutation. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. As the writer of this letter, Paul, in verse 1, identified himself as Christ's slave, a called apostle, and a gospel ambassador. In the same way, he now identifies his readers. They are God's beloved, that's literal translation, and are called saints. It's the same kind of thing we had back in verse 1. Called is, once again, not a verb, it's an adjective. Paul is a called apostle. These Roman Christians are called saints. They didn't wake up one day and decide to be saints. That is, they didn't take it on themselves to be God's special people. They didn't reason it all out and conclude that being saints was probably the best plan under the circumstances. God called them. They are the called of God. In verses 8 through 10, Paul talks about the current link between him and the Roman church, and it's a prayer link. He constantly remembers them in his prayers. Do you have a church that you constantly remember in your prayers? You should certainly remember our church. We need it. But do you ever pray for God's people on other local gatherings? Do you pray for them consistently over a long period of time? When I come over here on Saturday nights to pray, I remember quite a number of churches to the Lord. I mention their pastors by name, and I ask God to accomplish his will in their church families. Paul tells the Romans that he'd been doing the same thing for them. Paul waits until he gets to verse 11 to let the Romans in on what he's been planning. He wants to come to Rome. 
He wants to impart to them some spiritual gift to make them strong. Now, the strength he has in mind is not some individual spiritual might. He's thinking about the church's corporate solidity. In other words, he's not trying to develop individual Christian superstars, but put together a strong winning team. But he's no sooner than said this than he interrupts himself because he doesn't want to give his readers the impression that he thinks of himself as some kind of celebrity preacher they can't do without. He foresees mutual benefits in their relationship. Yes, he had something to give to them, but he knew that they had something to give to him as well. So he writes in verse 12 that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Pay attention to that phrase, mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Do you know how to encourage another person? Maybe someone who's grieving or who's tired and hurt or discouraged by failure. We might think that people are encouraged by our wise counsel. That's not usually the case. Ask any counselor. We might think that people are encouraged by our animated pep talks and our enthusiastic support. That's not what Paul says either. We might think people are encouraged by our timely gifts, but that's not what's most helpful. What encourages people, what gives them hope and helps them go on in difficult circumstances is our faith. It's curious. We don't help people most by how we relate to them. We help them most by how we relate to God. I've known people who are always rushing to somebody's rescue, codependent spouses and parents, but the somebody never seems to be helped. What's the problem? The problem is the rescuer is focused on the wrong person. He or she's trying to touch that person's life directly instead of through Christ. But if the rescuer was filled with faith in God, if faith obedience was overflowing his or her life, it would make a tremendous difference to that other person. We preachers especially need to remember this. The best thing we can do to help our congregation is to trust God fully ourselves, to trust him fully, joyfully, sincerely. It's not the pastor's eloquent sermons or self-sacrificial actions that most benefit a church. It's his faith in God. And the same thing is true of parents. You want to help your kids know and love God and spend eternity with him? And stop focusing on your kid and start focusing on God. It's not about having the right words to say, but about having an authentic, dynamic faith in the Heavenly Father. In the history of revivals and religious awakenings, when the faith sweeps across cities and states and even nations. The key has never been this or that charismatic individual. The key is the faith of the people. Faith stirs faith. Faith is contagious. If we want our kids or loved ones to trust Christ, the first thing we can do, the best thing that we can do, sometimes the only thing we can do, is trust Christ ourselves. In verse 13, Paul writes, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, 
in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. It's interesting that the great apostle had often planned to go to Rome, but had been prevented in doing so. It seems that his plans fell through repeatedly. Now, I knew that that kind of thing happens to me. I didn't know that it happened to the apostle Paul, but apparently God does not always guide in a, in a way that a person's plans, even a spiritual person's, even the apostle to the Gentiles' plans are realized. You should chew on that one for a while. Paul once told the Corinthians that he didn't plan things lightly or in a worldly manner. He clearly thought that God was good with him going to Rome. That's why he planned it. And yet his plans were frustrated again and again. Some people think it was the devil that frustrated Paul's plans. Other people think that it was Paul's success that frustrated his plans. How could he leave Corinth, for example, when there were so many people there who were coming to faith? The surprising thing to me, though, is that try as he may, Paul couldn't make it to Rome. Couldn't, that is, until he was arrested and his world turned upside down. When his dream of going to Rome was finally realized, it was as the prisoner of the Praetorian Prefecture of Asia, of the Diocese of Oriens, under the procurator Festus. That was not how Paul imagined himself going to Rome. That's not how he wanted to go to Rome. But Paul was Christ's slave, not his consultant. Chew on that one for a while, too. If Messiah Jesus chose to have him go to Rome in the custody of a centurion and his soldiers, that's how he'd go. He might not understand why it should be that way, but he didn't need to know why, because he knew who. And that was enough for him. All right, last week we introduced Romans. This week we roamed around the introduction But even in the introduction, there are some truths for us to understand and apply to our own situation. First, if you have faith in Jesus, you too are one of God's called ones. You would not have got in if he hadn't called. But there's something else here. See, Christianity is not junior high gym class all over again. You remember that? Anxiously waiting for someone to pick you for their team, afraid that no one wanted you. And sometimes no one did. I can still remember kids being left until everyone else had been chosen. And the captain with the last pick complained because he had to take so-and-so. That's not the way it is now. You are one of God's called ones. God wants you. He chose you. And he was planning on choosing you all along. He's so happy to have you on his team. You are one of his chosen, so take heart. Trust your captain. He knows what to do with you. If you're on Jesus' side, here's the second thing. Your life will exhibit faith obedience. That's what happens when God calls us and gives us his spirit. Faith obedience is not about keeping a bunch of rules. It's about obeying the ruler. Faith obedience is glad-hearted, not downcast, hopeful, not discouraged, eager, not resigned. Faith obedience is sometimes hard and scary. That's true, but it's good. The people on Jesus' side want to obey, even when they mess up. And sometimes they mess up. 
And God isn't surprised when that happens. He's not disappointed. He knows it's part of the process. What you do when you stumble is this. Get up. Confess your sin and your need for God. Ask for his help and get back up. A trip is not a fall. And where you fell is not a grave unless you stay there. Don't stay there. Trust God and get up. Last thing. Some of you are desperate to see a spouse or a child or a friend come to faith in Jesus. You've been praying for this. You want it so badly. And you keep thinking that he or she will believe if you can just find the right words to say. But you've got things in the wrong order. It's like putting on the perfect paint for your new house before the drywall's up. The best thing you can do for that other person is to have a confident, richly relational faith in Jesus yourself. Get your focus off the person you're worried about and onto the one you trust completely. When your spouse, child, friend, what that person needs is a you who is full of faith. The kind that gets expressed in glad obedience to King Jesus. When that's the case, almost any words you use, however ineloquent or stumbling, will work just fine. God will do magic with them. All right, let's pray. Father God, apply what you want us to keep to our hearts by your Holy Spirit now and to our lives through our faith obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen.